You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Thank you, Ted. Thank you, Tristan, worship team, Jeff, everyone who has participated in the service this morning. If you're here for the first time at Grace Community, we extend to you a very special welcome. Thank you for being with us during this extremely important time of the year as we think about Jesus' last days before his crucifixion and resurrection. Uh, This past year, I resumed a practice that I began much earlier in life but have not pursued for years until this past year. I've committed to read a chapter of Proverbs every day this year during the months that have 31 Days. And when I get behind in my imperfect uh, fulfillment of the commitment, I just catch up and keep going. And it just struck me this week how alike Proverbs is with the text that we're in this morning. Because Proverbs remind us that, reminds us that what we see is not always exactly what is happening right before our eyes. It's not always what we think it is. And it surely does not have what you're seeing right now does not have the last word on the subject. Job and his three friends learned this lesson in dramatic fashion. Not only Job, but his three friends realized what you see is not always the truth. Fortunately, we in these New Testament days have God's word to point us to the crucified and risen Savior to help bring perspective to times when life makes no sense at all. In this morning's text, we're going to see the ultimate reversal of roles from what we think is the reality unfolding before our eyes. John 18, verses 28, or verse 28 through 1916, is ostensibly describing Jesus' trial before Pilate. But if you look just a little bit below the surface, You'll understand that the roles are reversed. And really, Pilate begins to recognize, hey, wait a minute. Perhaps I am accountable to this one who is standing before me, beaten, senseless. Next week, we're going to follow Jesus to Golgotha. So far, we've been with Jesus in the upper room in, in, in Gethsemane. Uh, before Annas and Caiaphas in his trial before the Jewish leaders. Next week, we're going to follow Jesus to Golgotha as he is raised to die on a cross, placed between two criminals, the spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This morning, we are at the Roman Praetorium or Pilate's Palace where he stayed when he was in Jerusalem, where Jesus is yet again. Although it doesn't seem like it at first blush. He's clearly in control of his destiny. Our text is a long one, but we're going to begin with a short portion. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. It's our custom to stand as the scripture is being read. So if you would, please stand. And I will read John 18, verses 28 through 32. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas... To the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. 
which was not unusual for these trials, Roman trials, to take place early in the morning. It was early morning. <clears throat> they themselves, the Jewish leaders, did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, <clears throat> What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Now, there's a lot of emotion going on here on everyone's part except for Jesus. You get the sense he's very deliberate. So I'm not trying to be dramatic, just to, just to capture the sense of what was going on. And so the Jewish leader shot back. If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you and be seated. <clears throat> Well, we know that there's drama in Jesus' trial before Pilate, but there's drama that we will easily miss if we don't take time to follow the flow of conversation between these two very highly intelligent men, Jesus and Pilate. In his time before the Jewish leaders, Jesus didn't have much to say before his accusers. But John records enough of his conversation with Pilate for us to perceive that there was significant discussion, debate, understanding happening between the two leaders or between the two men. As the interrogation progressed, it appears that Pilate understood, maybe I'm the one, after all, on trial. Now, he didn't say it. He surely didn't want to admit it to himself. But he knew there was more going on than meets the eye. Our text begins with the Jewish leaders delivering Jesus to Pilate, but refusing to come into the Gentile quarters because that would make them unclean and therefore unable to eat the Passover. Now, wait just a minute. When was the Passover meal? Was it the night before Jesus was crucified or was it the night after Jesus was crucified during that day. Um, some scholars think that the refusal of the Jewish leaders to go into the Roman praetorium indicates that Jesus actually ate the Passover meal on Wednesday night rather than on Thursday night. And that would put the timeline to where Jesus eats on Wednesday night and he would have been killed while the lambs were being ceremoniously slain for the Passover meal in preparation for the Passover. That makes sense. However, it would be in conflict with the Synoptic Gospels, which make it clear that Jesus ate the Passover meal with his disciples. And it's also uh, true that there's no way that the Jewish leaders would have slain the animals for Jesus and his disciples to eat. They wouldn't have gotten that out of whack. So while there are several possible explanations, and while the explanation of Jesus being killed at the same time the lambs were being slaughtered might be attractive, 
I agree with D.A. Carson and most conservative scholars who think that John followed the custom of referring to the entire week as Passover. Yet Passover, one day, and then the seven days following were the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They immediately followed. So it's like an eight-day um, festival and feast. And the entire time was called Passover. Whenever you say, are you going up to uh, Jerusalem for Passover? People would say, yeah, uh, I'm going to stay for the whole time. And they didn't say, I'm going to stay also for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It was just Passover. So that's likely what was going on here. It's far more likely the leaders did not want to defile themselves before the Sabbath. This would have been Friday. And the Sabbath coming up at sundown, they didn't want to defile themselves then, especially during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It was a high Sabbath. The whole week of which, remember, was called Passover. To go into more detail, and I could go into a lot more detail about all the different thinking behind it, but it would take our focus off the trial, so I will, I'm going to leave it there. Since the accusers would not come to him, Pilate went out to the Jewish leaders who made it clear they wanted Jesus to be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. The Jewish leaders knew that their case was weak. So they substituted emotions for facts. And although Pilate had no interest in this case, he knew there would be trouble if he did not examine Jesus thoroughly. <laughs> This was all according to God's plan. Jesus would die by crucifixion. Although Pilate at this point was determined that that would not happen. We pick up in verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priest have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. Interesting. But my kingdom is not from the world. All four Gospels record Pilate's first question of Jesus. Are you the king of the Jews? But he, he said it like this. <laughs> really? You? You are the king of the Jews? Bedraggled? Beaten up? Because the Jews had already beat him about some. Really? You're king of the Jews? Jesus was certainly not the sort of king that Pilate would have expected, nor would any of us expected this man to be king. Jesus' question to Pilate brings a contemptuous response from Pilate as he reminds Jesus who is in charge. He wants to know what Jesus had done to land himself in such trouble. See, the Jews delivered him because he said he made himself out to be the Son of God. Pilate's interested, what did you do? Why are you here? Pilate did not want to execute Jesus. If there were no cause. But Jesus responded in a way that got Pilate's attention. 
If my kingdom were of this world, I wouldn't be here. My followers would have resisted the Jewish leaders. It's not a beef with Rome. It's a beef with the Jewish people. And even though Jesus had told the Jewish people exactly how they were missing God's whole plan of redemption, it was really their beef with Jesus that had landed him here. Now verses 37 to 40, and we could spend weeks exploring the depth of, of the truths in this text. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man. For the Passover, look, we can get over the, we can get around this. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. So in this little portion, Pilate began with what was surely a sarcastic remark, but Jesus said something that pulled him up short, stopped him short. For this purpose, Jesus said, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. And anyone who is of the truth, anyone who listens openly to the truth, not stated but implied, will listen to my voice. That's in there. But also will believe. That is implied. What is truth? Pilate says. Who can know anymore? Somewhere in this conversation, Pilate completely changed his opinion of Jesus. So much so that later we will be told that Pilate was growing more and more afraid of Jesus. It may have been here that Pilate began to realize that he was the one accountable to Jesus, not the other way around. He went out to the crowd to ask if they wanted him to release Jesus. But the crowd, if there was a crowd at this time, surely there would be in just a few minutes. But at this point, they're crying out, no, not this man, but Barabbas. Mark informs us that Barabbas was an insurrectionist and a, and a murderer. He had committed murder in the insurrection. So they had tried to overthrow the Roman government. And in so doing, all they did was to, to, to just stoke the ire of the Roman people. And a lot of Jews would have suffered for Barabbas' actions. And the Sanhedrin, many of whom were Sadducees, the Sadducees had a really sweet deal with the, with the Romans. And so they had no interest in insurrection. How much? Must they have hated Jesus to say, give us Barabbas, not this man. Chapter 19, verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came to him saying, hail, king of the Jews. 
And they struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man, the pitiful man. The beating that Jesus endured was brutal. Now, it's interesting that we have to learn this from other ancient texts. They knew all about it. The gospel writers knew the extent of the beatings that Jesus endured and the horror of crucifixion. We're going to talk about that next week. But we have to learn most of that from other sources. Everybody knew about these scourgings. Everybody in that day knew about the crucifixions. And it was a shameful thing. And so they didn't dwell on the details. They just said, this is what happened. Uh, Drawing from the other gospel accounts as well as John, and especially drawing from history that we know, we understand that Jesus' back was exposed and he was flogged or whipped either once or twice. Now, if we're not sure, again, because of the way that the the gospel accounts written, whether it was one or two, um, if twice, John is likely referring to the last or the more serious scourging that was administered with a whip that you know all about. You've heard, probably heard the Cat of Nine Tales, where this um, whip is split off into strips, many strips um, at the end, and laced with bone or metal. And then when they would administer, if you've seen the Passion of the Christ or something like it, they would administer, it would catch and just rip the flesh right off the person's back. And many of those receiving such whips, whippings were beaten so brutally that they died before they were ever crucified. And others had their entrails and their, and their organs exposed. It is no wonder that Jesus died as quickly as he did on the cross. A whole battalion of soldiers, 420 men at least, came and began to mock Jesus. They put the purple robe and the crown of thorns. Don't come up here and touch this. It is really sharp. Allison had this. We were married. Jeannie Ardner has so beautifully fixed this display for us. But this crown of thorns was put on Jesus' head. They put a reed in his hand. And later, according to some of the other accounts, they beat him on the head, most likely beating down with that reed these thorns into his skull. Clever fellows that they thought they were. They bowed in homage or homage, if you prefer. They said, hail, king of the Jews. Pilate, which may seem very odd to us, seeking the crowd's pity, brings Jesus out to present him as one who could not be guilty of the crimes for which he was accused. What was the response? Verse 6. When the chief priest and the officer saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said, Take him yourselves and crucify him. I find no guilt in this man. 
The Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself to be the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. Son of God, Pilate was paying attention. He returned inside to once again remind Jesus who was in charge, but just as quickly, Jesus turned the tables. Verse 9. He entered his headquarters and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Which must have shaken him up badly. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? What is wrong with you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority. Over me at all. Unless, and by this time, don't you know he's struggling for breath? If, unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Jesus didn't deny that Pilate's actions constituted a sin against him. But he assigned greater responsibility to Caiaphas. Try as he may, washing his hands, Pilate couldn't get away from responsibility. He desperately wanted to say, I'm not responsible for any of this. But he was afraid of Jesus because he had called himself the son of God. And Pilate was likely far more superstitious than he was spiritually minded. And he's thinking little g God rather than creator and judge of the universe. Nonetheless, Pilate was in a pickle and he knew he was. So let's read the rest of our text beginning with verse 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not... Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, that was enough for him. He said, I can't do anything else. He brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the stone pavement in an Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. Preparation likely, we'll see this next week too, for the Sabbath. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king! They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to be crucified. I don't know. Maybe he did that. But that was the end. So many things to see here. But I want to focus on the Jewish leaders and the people who demanded Jesus' crucifixion. And see how easy it is for those with the loudest voices to stir a crowd so that it becomes a mob demanding blood. It is highly likely that some of those crying out for Jesus' crucifixion 
on Friday had lined the streets of Jerusalem only five days prior. On Sunday afternoon, they were laying palm branches down before him and shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Amazing. As for the leaders, this was a clear example of the enemy of my enemy is my friend. It was absurd for the Jewish leaders to have claimed, we have no king but Caesar. That's stated in one of the other gospel accounts of this before them. Pilate said, his blood be on you. And they said, his blood be on us and on our children. Bring it on. It was horribly prophetic for only about less than 40 years later, the Romans leveled Jerusalem killed many of the people in the city. It was absurd, again, for Jesus, I mean, for the Jewish leaders to have claimed, we have no king but Caesar. Those alliances don't usually work out too well. This was a strange alliance. And indeed, it was no alliance at all. It was rather painfully obvious pragmatism. Pragmatism being exercised through a brief affiliation with Rome to fulfill the purpose of crucifying their opponent. Pilate understood the threat that the leaders were making toward him, and he yielded to the mob against his better judgment because of the danger of refusing to do so. They knew that they were saying, look, you don't crucify this man, you're in big trouble. We're letting Pilate, we're letting Caesar know that you let the king of the Jews go free. So Pilate handed Jesus over to be crucified. Well, that's the end of the story of our text today. We'll conclude the message with three thoughts about these events and what they mean for us. First, Suffering with Jesus has always been God's plan for believers. Prepare your heart to suffer, if called to do so, for God's glory. Now, that's quite a shift. We've been talking about this trial, and all of a sudden, now we're talking about us and suffering. The New Testament is filled with this kind of talk. Filled with this talk. Now... It is important to distinguish between Jesus suffering for us and our suffering for him. We can do nothing to earn Jesus' favor, even dying for him, as 1 Corinthians 13, 3 so clearly states. The suffering that Jesus endured during his trial in crucifixion is nothing like we will ever face. Now, when I say this, you'll say, uh-uh, but think about it. We may. It is true that a lot of people have suffered as much physically as Jesus did. And sometimes for many years extended in prison, tortured horrifically. Tortured for their faith in Jesus. So it could be that we would suffer as much physically. Although it's a, the level of physical suffering and pain that he endured was extreme. And if we endured as much, it would be suffering in extremis. But we could never pay 
for our sins with our suffering. Which is why it is, it is pointless to inflict pain on yourself thinking that you are pleasing God with self-inducing suffering. Whether the pain is physical, emotional, or mental. A lot of people, you know, whip themselves thinking that they're suffering with Jesus. That's not suffering with Jesus. But beating yourself up constantly over sins that you've confessed a million times is not doing you any good either. You're not pleasing God by being miserable. Jesus not only suffered shame and excruciating physical pain, but he endured his father's wrath <clears throat> against sin and sinners. It was rightly directed to us, and Jesus got in the way of it with the cross. He took our punishment so that by confessing our sins or say it, admitting that our sins are exactly as God says they are, wicked and heinous and, and constitute a, a rebellion against God as enemies of God. When we realize we're that kind of sinner and we cry out, for forgiveness, and we believe that he, he died in our place, we will be saved. The scripture tells us. As followers of Jesus, it's always been God's design that he will receive glory when we suffer. The shame and abuse that association with Jesus brings. But make sure any suffering that you endure is at God's hand, not your own. Now, if you think... And it's tempting to think, I feel it when I, even when I say it, really? God's design is for us to suffer like that, and that brings glory to him? If we think like that, we don't understand sin. But when we understand the offense that sin is against God, we recognize what Jesus endured for us and the privilege it is to suffer Along with him. Do not forget that Jesus told his followers. Don't be surprised when you suffer. The servant is not greater than the master. If they hated me. They'll hate you as well. But again. It's not our calling in life. To go out and make sure people hate us. Let the gospel. Let the cross. Be the offense. Not our attitude. Not our. Standing up as everybody wants to stand up today. We need to bring down the emotions. We need to be the gentle and lowly. Jesus to the world. We have had it so good for so long that I fear. We are unprepared. For real suffering for Jesus. Second. Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. God accomplishes his plans through weakness. We talked about this at the end of the sermon last week. For many years, we have measure, measured God's favor by American standards. We measure success with numbers and finances and public acclaim. But God's ways are not our ways. And kingdom values are upside down from worldly values. How different? Go to the end of 1 Corinthians 1 and see how God uses the weak to confound the mighty and the foolish to confound the wise. How 
the religious leaders must have mocked Jesus when he showed up with those royal robes and that crown of thorns and blood running down and his back beaten to a pulp and they knew it just beneath those robes. Man of sorrows. It's a beautiful description. Are you ashamed to be identified with the man of sorrows? How concerned are you about your rights? When we're called to identify with him. Do not despise your position of weakness before the world. God uses such to accomplish his purpose. Last, God is sovereign over all events. Even as your world falls apart, entrust your soul to the one who always judges justly. The New Testament writers were not ignorant. They were aware of great events happening in the world, but they understood that all power was nothing before the power of the one who stood before Pilate and the crowd screaming, crucify him. They knew that one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We too believe that one day we will have perfect understanding. And in the meantime, one of the ways that we bring glory to God is by suffering well for Jesus. Even though our suffering is nothing like that of our Savior. His suffering is an example for us. I'm going to close with three verses from 1 Peter 2, 21 to 23. I want to encourage you to read the surrounding verses later today. Far greater context than even what we're going to read. And it points to how we should respond to life's inequities. 1 Peter 1, 21. Or 2, 21, I'm sorry. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Not so that you will become a Christian, but because you are. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. These words, these words, written at the direction of the Holy Spirit by Peter, who while Jesus was standing before Pilate and the crowds, was all cowering in fear and crying his heart out because he had denied the Messiah. He had denied Jesus. But Peter, was forgiven and restored and greatly used in the kingdom. Hallelujah. That's encouraging. Let's pray. Father, as we behold the man, as we behold King 
May our hearts swell with gratitude for the price that was paid for our sin. May our hearts rise with commitment to follow this one to the cross. May we rejoice in being used in spite of our weaknesses. Father, give us courage to stand with the man of sorrows and recognize really that we only stand as he stands with us. May our hearts be drawn ever more tightly into communion with you, with the Savior. And we thank you for your plan in which Jesus was exalted on the cross and glorified on the cross and exalted and glorified in our hearts. And we know this to be true because of the work of the Holy Spirit who both wrote and interprets the scripture for us. We give thanks for it all in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Would you please stand for the benediction? Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.